You're listening to a Facts with Fiona Media production. This episode of Facts with Fiona is brought to you by Anchor, podcasting made easy from Spotify. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the fifth episode of Facts with Fiona. I'm your host, Fiona Moriarty, and this is Inside Playboy. Last episode, I sat down with Jennifer Saginor, best-selling author of Playground, A Child's Lost Inside the Playboy Mansion. Let's go to part two of that conversation. Your father's girlfriend, Vicky, really ushered in the security risk for your family since she had ties to the Colombian mafia. I remember reading the chapter where your father gives you a gun for the first time and says, keep this beside your bed. People are following us and watching us. Could you walk me through how Vicky took over your family in a way that you felt unsafe for the first time? As you said before, the mansion, sure, they had their private security, but it was almost innocent compared to the way that you were threatened by Vicky. Your father had to hire a bodyguard. All of that was really jarring. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That was sort of next level fear. Um hard for me to tell anyone about because that it just goes into just like this is insane no one's gonna believe me (laughs) you know um and no one did you know that's just the truth is that no one did um I um I definitely felt with Vicky coming into the picture and because her ex-boyfriend was this big you know Colombian mobster that I believe that I mean, he was, first of all, they were already in the drug world, of course. And this, there was a lot of politics at at stake here because a lot of the Coke was coming from them at the time. And it was just, you know, there was a lot of relationships at stake that were, you know, above, I think that my father was even in over his head. And so when you see a parent that's in over their head, then it becomes really scary. You know what I mean? Because I had always been scared of like him and his friends and their flashing of their sheriff's badges all the time. And, you know, being able to get in and out of any situation in Los Angeles or nationally, you know, when traveling and just really could throw their weight around anywhere, just based on all the politicians they knew and um, just their own personal relationships. But it becomes very different when you bring in you know any sort of mafia or any sort of like where absolutely no rules apply like it's just you know she Vicky was someone who was just ruthless and heartless and you know obviously such a coke addict herself at the time so it was just I think she was just using my father you know to you know playing off his own weaknesses at the time and using him to sort of like distribute through him and his connections, you know, that's what I saw happening, but obviously they're in a relationship and she's living with us. And I mean, the whole thing was so scary because I knew she thought I was onto her, which I was, you know, like, and it was like, I couldn't reach him. I couldn't get to my father because he was just, you know, too zoned out at the time on drugs. And, you know, I couldn't, couldn't reach him you know, I tried to explain it to my mother at the time. And she also thought I was on drugs because I was, but so I probably didn't clearly articulate, like, please help me. You know, like, I feel like people, I was going to die. Like, I definitely felt like I was going to die. And then I felt like if I went back to my mother, that my father would kill me because he hated her. And like, it was just all about like, 
zero to 100 like oh my god that like how is this happening like there's just it, it just went to like I can no longer function you know like Nomad as Xanax um is going to help me be able to get through the day and that's when I really knew like between that and Paulina's um coming to look for her after she disappeared I was done. Like, I was like, okay, I'm either just going to die right now or I need to get the hell out of here. And that's when I was like, knew I had to leave Los Angeles. I wanted to ask you about your relationship with your father and how it changed throughout your adolescence. You were close to him as a kid and your sister used to go to the mansion with you until the custody battle. Your mother and your sister ended up living together in Westwood and you moved in with your dad in Beverly Hills. Could you talk about how that affected you? How did your relationship with your family change from your childhood into adulthood? I mean, honestly, that's a great question. And no one really ever asked me that. But it's just, it's so, even today, it's just, it's so painful in many ways, just because, you know, those decisions that I made as a child, you know, because I was having so much fun and because I really was always like drawn to this escapism and this, you know, magical kingdom of the Playboy Mansion and just being able to order anything I wanted and do anything I wanted. And just, I mean, who doesn't want to live like that? You know, it truly was like Eloise at the Plaza. And I just, it was just like, I was, I too was seduced by the lifestyle. And I think because I was seduced, even though I was young, um, I, you know, well, you made this decision, you know, you decided to move in with your father full-time. And what happened is I think when I made the decision to move in with him full-time, cause I was always there anyways, is that he was like, Oh, well, I'm not going to pay her child support. Why should I give her child support? If you know, all the time. And so it turned very quickly from something that was just like, oh, I'd rather like crash it, you know, sleep over at his house more and, and live with him to something that became very legal where the court system, you know, got it. And he made it very clear to me that he didn't want me speaking to her anymore at the time. And he just had so much animosity towards her that it was, it, that was really scary. I mean, I didn't really realize the extent of his hatred towards her at the time um, and been with him. And that was hard because then it was just, I had no, I felt like I had no mother because, you know, even though she would try to come visit, you know, he didn't, he didn't want me to see her, you know, he didn't want me to like, you know, I remember she tried to come to the door and he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't let me speak to her. And I remember just, you know, hearing her at the door or she would try to then come to my like tennis games at school, you know, at the high school. And again, it was like, I just never felt like I could, you know, have a relationship with her. Like, I felt like it was forbidden, like that, that, you know, and I was too scared of him to even just recognize, you know, that that's what was going on is that I was like too scared to have a relationship with her. And then what happens, I was unable to, you know, communicate, you know, to her or I, you know, I, I felt like I tried, but I wasn't very successful at, um, hitting like how scared I was or, you know, how I felt my life was in danger, you know, and how I really needed out of this situation and didn't know where else to turn. 
and that's really the truth is that, you know, I was high, you know, I was doing drugs. So I probably wasn't articulating, like, wasn't my best self coming forward, you know, saying like, can you please help me like crying, breaking down? Like, I thought I was crying, you know, I thought I was like breaking, like being honest and like, please help me. But I'm not sure hundred percent if it came across that way. Um, terrifying. You know, that was terrifying feeling like I had no one to turn to. Um, that was just, and that, you know, from their perspective, it was like, oh, well, Jennifer chose a life of luxury, you know, we're, sit, we're here in Westwood living in, you know, our small, like single family house. And here she is, you know, moving to Beverly Hills to this house, which of course no one is even at the house because we're always at the Playboy Mansion. So it's like, oh, she just wants like the butler service and, you know, to live the high life and to take half limo everywhere. And like, you know, like very quickly it was like sort of put into, the, I was put in the category sort of almost like these girlfriends, you know, like, I'm just like, oh, I'm like a money whore too, so to speak, you know, <laughs> like, oh, I'm just like in for the ride and out for, you know, how I can benefit. And I can see at the time how it may have looked that way. Um, and it probably was that way, you know, maybe I'm sure at the time, like I was given a Mercedes, you know, convertible Mercedes at age 15. Like I just was given the gifts that you see a lot of these girlfriends being given, you know, at the Playboy Mansion. So I'm sure I was seduced also. And I, and I did, you know, want this fast paced lifestyle. So obviously now that I'm older, I can take responsibility for that and see that it was, it was seductive and exciting and fun. Who wants to be judged and who wants, you know, people that are just like, you know, almost blaming you at the time for your decision, you know? And I think that like karmically over the decades, I felt that from my mother and sister, like that their closeness, obviously their bond and they've remained very, very, very close. And I, I didn't feel on the outside of that closeness, but unfortunately, like I still do in many ways. Um, and you know, obviously really hard. Um, it's like, yeah, we, we were super close. He was like such a hero. And, you know, I looked up to him. I looked up to Hef as a kid. And it's hard to watch that sort of crumble. You know, it is. I also have found like forgiveness you know, I don't think they, they, the, the times are very different than in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, even the early 2000s. Um, again, like what I'm most upset about is just being silenced, you know, and I, the hypocrisy. That's what I'm most passionate about because I just I, I just don't want it to, anyone to ever have to go through that again. You know, it's like even though I was a kid, it's like, I have to take a little bit of responsibility for my decisions. You know, I mean, yeah. I can't, I can't just like pawn it off on like, Oh, like I was seduced. Oh my God. You know, I'm not a victim. I don't believe I'm a victim. You know, I saw this fast paced, fun lifestyle with these massive parties. And yes, I was seduced by it because it was fun. You know, I mean, it's just, I can't as an adult and like turn around now and be like, oh my God, like I had no idea what I was doing. It's like, yes, I did. It was fun. I was given toys. I was given money. I was given, you know, credit cards. Uh, you know, I could go to any restaurant. I can go shopping anywhere. I could go to nightclubs if there's no rules. I didn't have curfew. I didn't have, you know, like chores to do. I didn't have to do my homework after school. I could get a tutor. I mean, lots of these, lots of these things.
So yeah, we're, we're accessible. So it just made life wanting to escape real life possible. And that's what I was into at the time. Throughout the course of the book, you have a couple of run-ins with your sister, but they all end up being in these public places and you have this sister loyalty to her that really comes out and you embrace that. She's only 14 in a club and this older bouncer guy is trying to get with her. You have this maternal instinct to protect her, but in a way, it seems like living with your father, it had to be muted, even though you did embrace that in public. In chapter 18, there's a point where you're on the phone with your mother and he's just suffocating you. He's like, who are you on the phone with? And you can't admit that you're on the phone with your mom because you know the consequences. Do you think your father's power over you estranged you from your mother and your sister? No, absolutely. I definitely think that this power that my father had over me for all along as a child, um, pulling me away from my mother, you know, even at a very young age, she used to wake me up and at like midnight and be like, oh, let's go have ice cream. And, and we'd go downstairs. And I just remember he would talk like mad shit about my, my mother at the time. Like I didn't realize it because I thought, oh, I'm favored and I'm getting all this attention. But really it was a father who was just really pulling one of his daughters, you know, away from their mother. And I just, you know, that was such a cruel, selfish thing to do. It was, I mean, a close relationship with a mother. Well, I mean, that will haunt me forever. You know, I mean, there's, there's no one in the world that can make up for that relationship. You know, there's nothing, I can't go buy that relationship really, you know, it's never going to happen again. And I just feel like that's, you know, it's so unfortunate and it, it pains me still. I definitely feel like you know, I'm not as tortured as I once was over it. You know, it's still painful that there's consequences to, you know, allowing that powerful relationship with my, you know, that my father had over me to, you know, to control me and to pull me away from my mother. Um, I was too afraid to have a relationship with her. I was, you know, even afraid all through college. I mean, we really didn't even start to mend our relationship until college. It's been challenging to watch she and my sister have a very close relationship, you know, even through my 20s, 30s, 40s. I mean, you know, it's, you know, it's hard to watch. I mean, I always wish that I grew up with, you know, in a family with like two parents that I was close to, you know, and just had like, you know, it's like I would for that, you know, just to have two like loving parents who are very supportive and that I was really close to and that I felt that kind of like bond with. Yeah, you talk about how you looked for maternal figures in your life, but those ended up being your partner since your father tore you away from your mother, like Kendall was one of them. Did you look at Kendall and others as a substitute mother to try to replace your own? No, 100%. I mean, for me, 100%. I mean, people, for me, I feel like my sexuality was definitely developed in this environment. I felt it, you know, just from longing for that relationship with a mother and just really craving that affection and nurturance and really just wanting someone to be there for me. As the years went on, I can see that no one can really replace that love that only a mother can give. But I think I, you know, I searched for it in other people for a very, very, very long time. Um, And 
you know, again, I think there's because I grew up in an environment that had no boundaries. I think I've had a lot of intimacy issues just in general with men and women, though it really shaped my sexuality in the sense that I really did want that relationship with a woman, you know, for so, for so long. And obviously because of so many things I've gone through with men, you know, I'm like in the middle, it's tough. You know, I have intimacy with issues with, with both. I have a lot of male friends. I, I just feel like I watched myself sort of like, you know, grow into somebody who was searching for, for, for qualities, these nurturing and affectionate attributes like outside of myself. And I feel like now that I've been sober and I'm trying to work on myself, like I'm really trying to search for that same sort of emotions or spiritual connection, like with, you know, a higher power with God, with some sort of spiritual connection so that I don't have to be so, I don't want to be so like dependent on another person in that way. You know, I don't want to like put that kind of yearning for a mother, you know, onto like other people. Like it just, it's just never going to be replicated, you know? And so I'm just never going to, I don't think find that in another person. And, um, and I know it's a very dangerous path to go down because no one will be able to really, you know, fill those shoes, you know? And so I've just really had to come to terms with like, I don't know, like, how do I nurture myself? You know, how do I, you know, give myself that compassion and how do I, you know, turn inward and, um, and really trying to just come to terms with everything. That's been sort of like, you know, the path for me for the past few years. Yeah, it's like a journey. So how did your relationship with your friends and peers at Beverly Hills High School change over the course of your education? Did growing up at the Playboy Mansion affect your reputation? I remember reading a lot about how it changed. You went from this Coke bottle glasses wearing preteen to the most popular girl in school overnight. You were hosting these extravagant parties on the tennis court of your dad's Beverly Hills home. You had DJs, security, and alcohol. Then there was a change in your status where you were ostracized, but then it bounced right back and you were able to get your friends back. Can you walk me through how your relationship with your peers changed and morphed throughout your schooling years? For me, I became very popular, like overnight, of course. Like I was, I was like this little tomboy with like thick rim glasses, like very nerdy, you know, all of a sudden I'm hanging out at the Playboy Mansion, you know, and I have like, you know, playmates or like my group of friends, you know, like our gang. Like I still have a picture from the eighties that I think it was Sandra Theodore who made it, but one, one of the girls, one of the playmates in our little gang made it. It's like a picture of all of us and all of our names are on this little like, you know, piece of paper. And, you know, I really was spending so much time there and no one understood these, these women. And I feel like many of them were very lost in their own way. And I I just felt a connection to them because I too felt lost. And, you know, my mother and my sister and all my friends in high school and in elementary school kind of really looked at them like hookers and just looked at them as like, you know, money whores, you know, that is like out for money and fame and this and that. And so they just really didn't give them any respect at all. They didn't really look at them as people. And because I was spending so much time with them, I definitely connected to them. 
And it, it put a strain on my friendships in high school, especially. I still had so many close friends in high school, but I was dividing my time. So I was living in like two different worlds. You know, I was, I was having the big parties. I was, you know, throwing these, which also catered to my ego, my identity at the time, you know, which was all about the Playboy Mansion and going to nightclubs all the time and having these big parties. And, but then there was the also side where a lot of these girls were at Beverly Hills High School that at the time they were very conservative and, you know, being bisexual or being gay, either one was definitely not accepted back then. You know, it was not something that was accepted in the eighties and, um, and even moving into the nineties, I mean, it was just definitely not anything that was uh, accepted or talked about and very, very different. So I feel like that being at the Playboy Mansion enabled me to be more free and experiment and, you know, and, and once I was, and once I was having this secret affair with Kendall, there was no way I could really be honest with my high school friends or with my sister or my mother, because I knew none of them would approve of it. You know, there was so much judgment around sexuality that I knew that I could never talk to them about it. And so that also put a big strain on those fr- on those relationships, you know, just feeling like I couldn't open up to them. And um, I think it really hasn't been until more recently in our society, like the past like 15 years or so that it's become, or 20, whatever it is, really like 15, it seems like years, it's become, or 10 years, it's become a lot more like, you know, our whole society has really shifted and people are a lot more accepting and open-minded and, you know, understand the value of connecting with people more on an emotional and spiritual level. And I think that they're more forgiving when it comes to, you know, those physical um, relationships now with the same sex. So, but that would, that would definitely was not happening in the eighties and the (laughs) nineties. You live this double life, school girl at Beverly Hills high school by day, party girl at the Playboy mansion by night. So over the course of the time you lived at the Playboy Mansion, do you think you were living two different lives? No, I definitely felt that I was living two different lives and two different worlds. Um, I think that my identity was definitely like, oh, she lives at the Playboy Mansion and she's like always at the mansion. And like, of course, like I knew that would get me a lot of attention and it did like in elementary school and sneaking my friends up there in elementary school and, you know, in high school as well. I mean, I, I think that even in, into my 20s and 30s, who didn't want to go to those Playboy Mansion parties? I mean, they were incredible. They were the best parties in town. They were so fun. You know, as it became older, I definitely, you know, it was, it was like living, of course, one world, and you know, into my 20s. But as a teenager, it was definitely, I felt divided. Like I had my you know, my oneself at the mansion where it was okay to be in this secret love affair. And it was okay to, you know, run around with a girl and to be affectionate, you know, with Kendall. And then I'd go back to my high school friends and my mom and sister who were all much more conservative and, you know, not accepting of that. And I just, you know, it was definitely two lives, a hundred percent. 100%. And plus one world was full of rules and boundaries and, you know, homework and responsibility and curfews and chores. And 
the other world was just free for all. It was a very interesting thing to juggle. That's for sure. Did your dad's relationship with Hefner ever cross the line? In your book, you talk about them as soulmates and how their bond was more than just a friendship. Their relationship together overpowered any relationship they had with the women they were with. So could you go into how you saw them? Were they friends? Were they lovers? Yeah, I mean, I always saw, I saw from a young age, there was a man by the name of John Dante, who was living with half before my father. And as a kid, I would run around the halls and, you know, spy on them and listen to them argue like at night, like, why is John Dante here? And he has to go and you know, just kind of like arguing over him. And I thought it was like weird. Like, why are they arguing over this guy? And um, John Dante had the bedroom that was next door uh, to my father's room. But I don't know, I guess like my father just still was like, even though he had his room down the hall from half and then there was John's bedroom, John was there first. And there was just, I don't know, there's just a lot of like, it was almost like, oh, you can't have like two best friends there. You know, and it was, I just noticed that there was a lot of tension. That's when I was much younger, obviously, in the mid 70s and moving into the 80s. Or no, yeah, mid 70s. And then I think he, my father just really, they just kind of, he and John butted heads. And I didn't realize the really the nature of Hef's relationship with John Dante until I was much older. Um, and I just noticed that he left or half moved him to like New Mexico or something. And I just know that um, my father was much happier. And then just, you know, my, my father saved half's life multiple times, both publicly and not, not publicly. So I, I believe that that brought them so much closer. Of course, like orgies and group sex are very popular in the 70s and the 80s. So that was sort of a given that they were all like with each other. Um, You know, I wasn't, thank God, involved in (laughs) those scenarios, but um, I know that they all were openly like with each other and, um, and just through like the, 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 the nineties, there was a, there, I don't want to say who, but there were some girlfriends that were very jealous. You know, I was my father's confidant and, I remember him always like saying like, oh, these, you know, you know, my father would travel with Hef everywhere. They would go out nightclubs all the time. And then of course they would play backgammon, you know, gin, Monopoly, like they, they would, they had such a commonality of interests um, that really their relationship of 40 years, like it really just it it went through so many like any kind of relationship ups and downs good times bad times times when you're not speaking and it just I think that by just remembering that like he was annoyed because he had like Hef was like oh you better not come on this trip I'm getting like a lot of like he was getting a lot of heat from one of these girlfriends and this is like back in the nineties or maybe it was the early two thousands, actually. Maybe it was the early two thousands. I'm trying to remember which girl, I know which girlfriend it was. I'm just trying to remember which year, which, which decade, which year. And so I just remember that he was bummed because half was like, Oh, I don't, you know, they were going to go to Miami. And then he canceled, like, and said, I just don't think you should come on this trip. And 
he was very disappointed. It might have been like really the early 2000s. It was before the Girls Next Door, that gang came along. It was the girl before that. So it's it just, you know, a combination of that and just like putting the little pieces together, like, and then just like knowing half and just knowing that he was closer to his guy friends, he had a deeper connection with them. My father was in the room with him when he passed and I just know how much he loved him and how much they loved each other. And I just, it just kind of all made sense to me that, you know, that, that, that I believe that, that, that who he really, you know, connected with on so many levels, not, not just like a physical level, like really more like spiritually and emotionally was someone like my father, like who was with him by his side when he died. Like when you go through 40 years, you know, with someone and they're like by your side when you die, it's just, you know, I I think it's like an indescribable bond that they had because he had seen him go through so much and, you know, they had such an intimate relationship Um, and just, yeah. So I just think it's, I think that it it minimizes it by saying like, oh, like, were they involved or did they ever, you know, hook up or whatever? It's like, Heffern was openly bisexual. You know what I mean? Like, he was openly with men and women. So, you know, to me, like, all of the girls were for sure. That's just my opinion. You know, um, I think probably he did want to clamp down when he when he did marry Kimberly and he wanted to have kids. And that was a different time in our society, too. I think like Reagan was president or Bush or it was very Republican. And like, you know, he was probably getting a lot of heat with his with his with his magazine. And I just remember, like, politically, there was a lot of stuff going on in our in our, you know, our culture at the time. You know, but for the most part, maybe besides that, a lot. lot of things are very calculated and the marketing machine always sort of assisted him in these big public decisions and these groups of girls that were always like flocking around him like to me it was just always very obvious but I don't know like uh, I mean it's remarkable to me that our society even like basically normalized prostitution you know like putting these girls on pedestals you know it's like okay because they got like you know an allowance every two weeks or something you know so for me there's just I, I can't even believe what our society has basically bought you know that you know I, I think someone in this doc series says oh he'd be you know, laughing from his grave, or he put a, he put a, he's, you know, he fooled everyone, but, but, but he, you know, it's, I don't think it was done in a way where it was just like, it was like, there's two different people. There's the business and the company and the public facade, and then there's half the man and the person. And I don't know, I guess for me, it was just very obvious. Like, didn't these women know that they didn't have an intimate relationship with them? I don't know. Like, how could a man have an intimate relationship with 10 girls at the same time or five girls at the same time or even three or two girls at the same time? Like, how do you do that? Is that even possible? I mean, in many cultures, maybe it is, but I just, I just thought it was really obvious, like based on, you know, who does he spend all his quality time with? Not them. Yeah, so was it common knowledge around the mansion that Hef was bisexual? I mean, I thought it was. I mean, he said it in interviews, so I always thought that it was it's common knowledge. I thought so. I was always raised thinking that every, I thought everybody was bisexual. I grew up thinking everyone was bisexual. I didn't realize it, no, that the whole world wasn't bisexual until college. I also 
grew up thinking that most of these girls, most women were like on payrolls. That's what I always thought <laughs> until like college. But that was probably a direct result of the environment you grew up in. Obviously, you were seduced by the lifestyle at the mansion. It was a kind of distraction. As you said before, did you feel like going to college opened up your eyes to the reality that the Playboy world was not real life? A hundred percent. Going to college definitely was like a very, like a blast of like cold air, you know, like to sort of try to, to wake me up. And uh, it was brutal. Um, like I said, I thought everybody was bisexual. I thought women, all women were almost like hookers almost. Like I thought that they were all like sort of like consensually on like payrolls. Like I just, that's what I always was taught. Like I just thought that the women used the men and the men used the women. And there was just a lot of like, I guess, brainwashing in a way that I had to sort of undo Plus like this whole idea of family, you know, being raised in sort of this like mafia type setting, you know, and those set of rules and loyalty that's instilled over the decades is very different than like, you know, a Southern Belle who I'd meet and her parents, right. That are coming on like parents day or something, you know, I mean, very different, like, or, or they're playing games on a Friday night after like a family dinner, like just a very a rude awakening into, you know, the mon- mundaneness of normal life or just like, exactly. basic, you know, American families. And that's when I really started to like, really just, realize what I just you know lived through and survived and really start to understand that it wasn't that that wasn't reality you know and that there's a whole world out there and started to like really piece together what had been missing for me and then you know and just really that's what became the sort of like searching this journey of searching and really you know trying to unravel what I had just gone through. Yeah. Going back to the mansion, did growing up there set an unrealistic beauty standard for yourself? As a young girl, you grew up surrounded by these playmates who were completely sexualized and rated based on their physique. They were manufactured and altered to perfection by plastic surgeons. Did your image of these women's bodies affect your self-confidence? Absolutely. I mean, definitely I had like body dysmorphia, you know, I definitely like thought I was always fat and like, I was always like, oh, I have to be a size zero. And like, I was really, you know, like, you know, I was on a lot of prescription medication and always liked uppers too and downers and just anything. I mean, eating was just like never a big thing for me. I think I had an eating disorder for many years. So I had to unlearn you know, a lot of things and really start to understand that what's important in life are just like the simple things, you know, and understanding that, you know, that to start to really take care of myself in a different way, you know, and, and and that it wasn't about money. It's not about, you know, all the superficial toys. It's about like, you know, spiritual connection and, you know, learning how to take care of myself and learning how to nurture my own self and to turn, you know, towards some, some sort of like higher power God, you know, in my life, instead of trying to fill those needs with another person, you know, like I have a lot of friendships now, but it's just like, 
the idea of like being in these intimate relationships now is like, I, you know, it's like, I think I'm just happy with like dogs almost. You know? yeah. like, it, I don't know. I exactly. feel like I've been through so much and then, you know, and going through and, and filming this Amy doc series this past year definitely re-triggered like a lot of that trauma, like just you know, remembering a lot of the scenarios, again, like a lot of stuff they talk about at the Playboy Mansion. I also saw a lot of that at the mini mansions. For me, you know, I just, it's just always very like re-triggering and then, you know, not really getting acknowledgement again for my work really is re-triggering because it just reminds me of half silencing me and you know, like, it's very, like, I'm just trying to speak my truth and get my story out there and, and really find other people who can relate and connect with, um, the human parts of my story. And I really just always wanted to raise awareness, you know, and try to use those experiences to raise awareness. Um, so others wouldn't perhaps like make some of the same decisions I did. How did your relationship with Hefner change over the course of you living at the mansion? Did you ever feel violated by him? I felt violated by Hef, you know, several different times. I mean, one was when I really wanted to speak Kendall and I was like, at this point, forbidden to see her because we kept breaking all the rules and like, you know, being careless and running around publicly off the mansion property. And Hef was very clear that he didn't want us running around off the mansion property Uh, Because obviously it would start to get around town that we were having this, I was having this underage affair with his girlfriend, obviously. And so that would reflect poorly on him and poorly on Playboy uh, for many reasons. And not just because I was a minor, but because, you know, how was I able to have a five-year relationship with his girlfriend, right? Again, back to like intimacy if you're in an intimate relationship with someone for all those years, how is it possible for them to have another intimate relationship with someone else? Right. So again, I think it was also during those years that I started to see sort of parallel love stories happening. So the breaking point in my relationship with Hef was after he, you know, called to congratulate me about my book. He even laughed at the, you know, at the um, prologue where I talk about playground being this distraction from our true selves, you know, and he thought it was poetic and very insightful because it's all about how we, in order to, you know, um, avoid dealing with our demons, our own personal demons, we create these distractions you know, all this chaos and distractions. And it's in these distractions where we'll find our own personal playground. And I know that he really, you know, could appreciate that. And I really summed up what this experience was. But our falling out was when he canceled all my interviews and silenced me because that was just something that, I mean, I just, I never looked at him the same after that. You know, again, him wanting to watch me and his girlfriend um that was just sort of par for the course right I'm at the playboy mansion and this is a man who likes to watch women together he prefers to watch women together than engage with them and I mean this is just yes I could go I could cry for the rest of my life over that or I could be like I was in that situation I walked into his bedroom yes I was 17 but I you know I walked into his bedroom you know and 
And so I, I just feel like for me, it was just more the respect of somebody that I put on a pedestal for so long. And then he silences me and here he's the king of the first amendment and freedom of speech in our country. It's like, what, you know, that just for me really just turned my world upside down. And although I did stay enmeshed in that, in that inner circle, because I did still feel like it was family I, it, it put a strain on our relationship. And then when the girls next door came out and I realized that was just a manufactured response to my book, then it was like, oh my God, like now I've really been crushed. You know, now I really realize how powerful he was. You know, not only did he cancel interviews, but he manufactures a show to, you know, portray this image to our society that he wanted people to believe this facade and they bought it. Yeah. It's the hypocrisy for me. I mean, as a publisher, he touted free speech and then took it away from you. So my final question for you is how did you feel when the media memorialized Hafner's death in 2017? I mean, in 2017, I was definitely numb I, you know, was considering doing my own doc series and had an offer from a very reputable production company. But like, even in that, in 2017, and I'm sorry, in 2018, I just, I really didn't want to be like on this Me Too bandwagon, like of like, just like burning these men at the stake because I just really felt that it was also the times and it was a particular time in American culture. And I just really felt like if you're gonna burn the castle down, you have to burn down the women who are complicit with it. And I just, you know, I just felt mostly sad for my father because I knew he had just lost somebody that he was so close to. And, um, I just, I felt he was devastated. So I felt, you know, horrible for him and, um, you know, I'm glad they had those last moments together, those last months together that, you know, where they could just hang out and be in each other's company because they both seemed, you know, the most content when they were in each other's company. How's your dad now? Has he recovered from this? He got remarried. He's sober. He, you know, he got remarried and uh, was able to sort of, you know, move his life in another direction. Well, that's great. Thank you so much again, Jennifer, for coming on the show. Oh, you asked amazing questions. Oh my God. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to this special edition episode of Facts with Fiona. Stay tuned for episode six, dropping next week exclusively on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. 